Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all that you cannot understand. Praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest in your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind to lose it, leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Hello everyone, we are in the barn this morning and we are excited to continue our conversation on theodicy and suffering and how do we respond to suffering. Um, And this whole conversation is interesting in general, I think. It's become even more interesting um, in response to what's happened with uh, like our cultural shutdown. Um, In this particular community, we have interacted with some very real suffering over the past uh, couple months. And, uh, and then you've got the chaos that is the world right now. So I do feel like this conversation is generally incredibly prevalent. I also think that the conversation is becoming more necessary than ever. So I'm looking forward to diving in to some of this. And I want to begin, before we, before we go there, I want to begin with a song written by our beloved Noah Martis. Um, he just wrote this, and it's kind of in response to what's been happening over the past couple weeks, um, and the past couple months even. And the song is called Going Home. And uh, I, will, I will say that it's got a little bit of an edge to it, and it's a very personal song for Noah, and he, he wasn't sure if he wanted to share this or not. 
Um, but I thought, I thought it expresses something that's deeply embedded in the farmhouse, in our community. And so I will share this with you, and, and I hope you enjoy it. So this is called Going Home by Noah Martis. Well, it breaks my heart to say That I'm leaving you today I don't need a love or another nice day and that was just the part I played But you laugh like everyone And you laugh like everything alone It's no surprise you're not listening You're not here when I turn on the lights So what's interesting about that song is, uh, like, what what does he mean by going home? And Noah and I were talking about this, and there's such this drive in our world that if, if you want to make it, if you want to change things, if, if you want to have an impact, if, if you want to be cool, all of this is built on you got to go out there, and and the good things all exist wherever you're not. And something that he's been processing and something that's important to me, which is why I shared that poem to begin with, is uh, the action's here. The action is where you are. Um, and particular, particularly right now, there is this sense of we're keeping answers at a distance. And I keep coming back to, and if you listen to last week on racial reconciliation with John Torrance, there's, there's this difficulty that you're not going to do much. You're not going to change much. But you will change something if you act where you are. And there's something about like, yeah, I've, I want to see the world turned upside down. I wish all of this wasn't a problem. Uh, 
but the only thing I can do is here. I, I want to go home. I want to be where I am and I want to be here in such a way that it can't ever be the same. That that's, that's our invitation right now. And one of the thing that, things that is frustrating me in our cultural dialogue, and I say one of the things because I'm, I'm still considering starting the hashtag cancel humanity. Like this is, I told Vanessa yesterday that America feels like to me a conflict mediation session gone completely wrong. A lot of church culture interaction this week. And I don't, um, I told somebody, somebody yesterday I was, I was with a group of people and they said, so what do you think about that? That whole thing with Trump and the Bible and the church getting uh, set on fire and stuff. And um, I, this, this might sound bad and I don't mean it poorly, but that it's too easy of a target for me. I'm just not interested. I, 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 could, I could care less about the dogmatic response that it has received. But here's the deal. What we do have to do is go where, wherever you stand on what happened, wherever you stand on the, the rioting, wherever you stand on the protesting, whatever, wherever you stand on this racial situation and our, our uh, state system situation, it is a conversation that has to continue. But what I think is important is to go, but what does it mean to be part of a church within that? What does it mean for us to, to take our, our Christian identity and allow it to be the lens and the filter through which we see everything? And so I wanted to read for you um, what's called the Declarative Sentiments Adopted by Churches for Peace. And this was written in 1838 by William Lloyd Garrison, whom you might be familiar with because of his interaction in uh, the abolitionist movement. But I had come across this years ago, and this week, for some reason, it came to my mind. And so I, I, I took out some snippets of this and just wanted to read it. I think it's important for us to consider these things. And um, one thing in particular about this is that if we take this seriously, what should it mean for us? Um, also, if, if you do want to read the whole thing, it's only a couple pages long. Um, they must not have been uh, preachers of the age because it's too short. <laughs> Anyways, um, if you do want to read the whole thing, um, I can certainly find it or send it to you or just Google uh, what's on the screen right now, Declarative Sentiments Adopted by Churches for Peace by William Lloyd Garrison, 1838. We exist to create a peaceful universe. Therefore, while residing in our particular nations, we acknowledge that we have but one king and one land called Earth. We will love this particular land only as we love all other lands of which we are connected and interdependent. Our king is king of the universe, and all in the universe are our, all our family. The actions of our leaders and nations are secondary to the actions of God. We are bound to the laws of a kingdom that is not of this world. It has no state lines, no national partitions, no geographical boundaries, no divisions of, or rank of people, no inequality of sex. This kingdom 
is destined to overcome all kingdoms until all of creation finds the love of salvation, wholeness, and health. We will only abide by the ordinances which our teacher and king would abide by. We will not live by the sword, for the meek will inherit the earth. We condone no violence, especially the violence of nation-states and especially the violence of war. And we will resist injustice in the manner of Jesus, especially by those who propose to usurp our king and fail to bring the kingdom of God. We will forsake any state and allegiance to the king of the universe and in support of our kin, which is the whole earth. For our primary imperative is a peaceful universe. In the way of Jesus, if we are obedient and if we resist injustice, will manifest its hope. A Theodicy for the World, Responding to Suffering, the Book of Lamentations, and Us. So we had started this conversation two weeks ago. Last week we uh, interrupted so we could uh, interact with John Torrance, and I think that was a beautiful conversation. Um, But we're going to get back into this, and I really think, like right now, it might be like, I'm not sure how this is connecting with everything that's going on, but as we continue, I hope that we will will see how important the Book of Lamentations is and how important this conversation on theodicy is. So, we're going to get into it, and uh, Amy and I are going to interact a little bit here, and then we will open it up for conversations if you would like uh and and let me know uh let me know if in the chat if you have any thoughts or questions as we're going and i'll try to address any concerns um um, if i'm able to so do you want to sum up where we started last time um no. <laughs> okay. So last last time, and I'll be honest, I don't completely remember. I'm actually gonna I'm shifting myself around here okay. so I can see better. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't remember exactly what we talked about because it's been a while, and um, I have been I have been trying to write these thoughts into a more accessible form, which I know we mentioned, and then I started that and got about 20 pages in and then lost it all because my computer crashed. So, so that was fun. Yeah, that's awful. I didn't break anything <laughs> around me, though, except for my existential soul. Um, but so I don't remember exactly what we conversed about here. But I do know like some of the basic things are we, we went, okay, suffering is inescapable. It's inevitable. It's a universal reality. Uh, if there is one guarantee that I can make that all of us already know and all of us already find troubling, it's that where you're going to suffer. It's yeah. Part of things. Um, but we, then we had talked a little bit about how suffering involves theoretical satisfaction as well as practical satisfaction. Cause our goal is like figuring out a proper response, a healthy response. Um, and the goal of suffering, the goal of this conversation is healing, uh, or you could say restoration. It's to go through the process of grief. 
um, and loss so that you can uh, move forward onto like through the suffering onto a, a new landscape since the landscape of your life has now been crumbled into chaos, right? Right. So we had promised, I think, that we were going to get into the heady stuff about theodicy. Oh, and we just, we defined theodicy. Should I do that again or? Yeah. Well, and then because it involves the nature of God, that was one thing that we talked about last week was how Uh, this idea uh, connects to the nature of God and then why this is a question that Christians especially need to be asking. So it's sort of theoretical, but then we do need the practical bend, which we will get to. All right. So theodicy is the, it's the problem of suffering and evil within theism. So so theodicy says God is all powerful and God is all good, yet suffering and evil exist. How can that be? Right. Okay. So that's theodicy. Mm -hmm. And I would say that even, even if we're just talking, because we're talking about practical healing, we have to remember like the, the whole goal of this is practical, but when we suffer, we, we tend to go into that theoretical space of going, but why did this happen? What's wrong with the universe that this would occur to me? Um, and so we begin asking metaphysical questions. So metaphysical just means beyond the natural, beyond, beyond the physical. So we begin asking metaf- metaphysical questions about whatever exists and why this is possible. And I, and I think even in a culture where atheism is prevalent, I know a lot of atheists, I still think we have to have a conversation on theism in order to help with that theoretical desire. But all of that only exists so that we can find practical, uh, uh, practical satisfaction to how we heal and how we respond. Um, so I don't know that we need to make that case even further, but no, I think that covers it pretty okay. well. I think that's just um, human nature, that we are the ones who are inclined to want to know why something is happening us to us, try to make sense of it. And I think that no matter what your um, philosophical or religious beliefs are, that's going to be the question that comes to your mind when you either are suffering yourself or when you see things in the world like we do now and you ask questions like, why does suffering occur? Why does injustice occur? You know, Why is there discrimination in these different things? Yeah, so, but again... The theory, okay, the intellectual process, the philosophizing is only valuable if it leads to practical solutions, which means that uh, a theoretical practice can fail to do that. It can also make it even worse. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see that with with some, some theodicies. Uh, so how, do we want to, what part do we want to dive into first with this? Well, we had started out with the idea of human suffering, and then I was kind of interested in the idea of how these theodicies have come about through history. I don't know okay. if we want to get into that. Um, and even different things like what creates a person's theodicy as far as their cosmological view of the world or even a society, okay. uh, which is cosmological means like how the world was put together, yep. how you believe the world was made. Um, and then okay. whether that's changed over time from, you know, different historical backgrounds, different cosmological backgrounds. All right. So one thing we're talking about theodicy 
uh, we do need to say it's a relatively new idea. Theodicy hasn't been around that long as a field of study, right? True. The, the, the process of asking these questions has always been around. Yeah. Um, the earliest written records that we have from Mesopotamia are asking questions about this. Um, but specifically, like classical Greek philosophy was very concerned with this. They didn't call it theodicy necessarily, but people have been wrestling with this issue certainly forever. Um, now, out of ancient Greek philosophy, particularly like Plato and Aristotle, but even like Stoicism, you get answers to this question. Um, again, they didn't call it theodicy at that point. But theodicy became a real problem to solve based on a couple cultural factors. So the first one was enlightenment. Okay. Okay, so as uh, modern philosophy gets generated, so what we think of modern philosophy comes from the enlightenment period, and scientific rationalism becomes incredibly important in that society, and, and empirical evidence and all of this, there's a bit of a dichotomy between uh, what we would call secular culture and the church and theology. Um, and so the ability for the church to make rational arguments about its beliefs, okay, and, and, and you know, defend God under the, the rigors of skepticism, mm -hmm. that's important. They want to be able to do that, okay? So some theodicies come out of like that 18th century culture where that's getting brought up. Um, and again, that's primarily a response to the Enlightenment, I'd say. Okay, and that would be um, the idea that some philosophers brought up that the world is very mechanistic, that you have uh, everything is just sort of a machine, mm -hmm. that um, sometimes even animals and things don't necessarily have feelings, and it becomes to me a, very, a world where everything is rather separated, mm -hmm. that perhaps there was more of a view of the world where everything was a little more integrated, and now we have this separated mechanistic way of looking at things, yeah. and I can see where that could affect how someone sees the way suffering is, you know, or even the way they deal with God and their suffering. Yeah. So I'm sure we can get into that with some well, of these okay, you know, the cool the, the, <laughs> That perspective that kind of is like 18th century on a little bit where, yeah, the, the, the world is less these forms, some of which are incorporeal, abstract and and they manifest within physical things and everything's connected like that's a pretty ancient view of mm -hmm. the world sure that gets rejected um by a lot of modern philosophers uh the most the most prevalent way we see that so so if you're asking the question god is all powerful god is all good why is there suffering evil one answer to that in this in this section, and this is 18th century is really really where theodicy kind of starts, is that suffering and evil don't exist. Mm -hmm. It's a thing in your head. It's like an illusion. Yeah. So this would be like materialism and Neoplatonism lead to this, where uh, yeah, ev suffering and evil it's not actually real. It's it's or it's the result of a sort of demigod who is inferior to transcendence and is kind of evil itself and made all of these things possible. Like those are some of the things going on early on within theodicy. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing from enlightenment though is deism. Okay. So deism says that there is a maker 
a designer or a craftsman and that uh that being creates the world but is not involved in the world does that makes is that sure a, okay is so that you fair? have a, a, a being that doesn't necessarily care whether mm-hmm. you suffer right. suffering can be there but it has nothing to do with that particular god right so any suffering or evil that are experienced is not uh that's not god's not doing that yeah, right it. what's interesting is that a lot of a lot of the governments that come out of that 18th century era um, are built upon deistic principles. Mm-hmm. And, and we would say deism doesn't fit within proper theology. Uh, there's a strong case to be made that almost all of the founding fathers were actually deist. Yes, so uh, I've heard. <laughs> a, a, a lot of people uh, make a heavy case that America was founded as a Christian nation. I'm open to hearing those arguments, but from what I can see, we are founded as a deist uh, nation, which makes sense because that's what was happening at that time. Right. That, that mm-hmm. was You had enlightenment. You had the transcendentalists. A lot of those people were starting right. to come. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is all, all theodicies concern themselves with um, uh, providence. Okay, the idea of providence is that God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, um, and so how, how can God remain provident within suffering and evil? And they're trying to make a defense for how that could be. The third thing is free will. And one of the biggest moves that happens in theodicy is going somehow human autonomy plays a role in this. Mm-hmm. Depending on whatever the theodicy is will depend on how free will is articulated and they do vary. But the idea that that free will by human beings is a thing is kind of assumed within all of these, but in very different ways. So an example would be that in Providence that suffering and evil are real, but God uses that suffering and evil somehow to determine uh, outcomes and so God's still all powerful there. You do have a question of, is God all good then? If God right. is causing suffering and evil? Uh, so you can see how that one kind of bends towards the all powerful. And that's the f- emphasis on providence. The emphasis of free will uh, allows God's goodness to remain because the source of suffering and evil is in human beings. But then you have a question then, well, is God actually all powerful? Can God not do something about this? Right. And, and you can start seeing this tension between these different perspectives. Um, one of the other things, though, is if God creates free will and with the possibility of suffering and evil being a result of humans' decisions, then that seems like a design error. Yes, yes. Like an, an incompetent creator. You didn't see that coming. So then, therefore, it's still, it's still the transcendent being's fault. Mm-hmm. even if you, if you use free will. So you can see how complicated this gets, but all those criteria are going to, are going to be, um, are going to be involved. So let's look at a couple of the, uh, a couple of the common theodicies. Okay. If we, if we would want to, um, which one's your favorite? <laughs> I don't think I like any of them very much. <laughs> I have a problem right. of course, with the idea that, um, that 
if, like you said, if God is a good being and God is, is, is the one who uh, created the world, then indeed, why would suffering exist? I consider it an intrinsic part of the world. You cannot, you cannot ha not have suffering. And yet human beings do seem to be the ones that create certain kinds of suffering. It's like we're the ones who make it worse. Yeah. So I, you know, every single one of them to me has some lack because you know, if you're talking about God being good, creating a being that, you know, creating human beings capable of doing evil, obviously, and creating suffering, ultimately then that would be right. the fault, if you want to put it that way, of God. Yep. Um, and then even the idea that God could allow suffering or even create suffering in order to teach us things, which is one of them, I also have a problem with because that seems cruel. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know. What do you think? What, what, where would you go with some of this stuff? Well, let's talk about a couple of the options. So we already mentioned materialism and Neoplatonism. And both of those are similar um, in how they posit God's being. Um, and how God's involved in suffering, but all, both of them also kind of make a case of like, it's just either part of things or it's a perceived part of th things and the, the blame gets placed somewhere else. Those are also uh, very pre-modern, right? Those mm -hmm. aren't part of the theodicy conversation. The, the first theodicy, and, and here's the deal with all of these, you all might not know the names of them, but you know them, mm -hmm. you see them. And I'll try to point out how you see them play out in culture. The, the first one, and all of these are called by different names. There's no universal agreement. Um, people call them all sorts of different things. But the first one would be something like soul-building theodicy. Right. Okay. And this is the idea that God uses suffering and ordains suffering in order to develop human beings. Right? So you suffer and you go through a thing that hurts and the reason is because God's trying to make you better and make you mature in, in, in faith and in ethics so that you become a better human being and the world becomes better. Yeah, sounds like a bad relationship to me. Yes. <laughs> now, you also, it, these are really easy to deconstruct, but you also have to consider why would they go there, right? Mm -hmm. And they're trying to say that, no, look, good can come out of this. Good, good can come, right? Right, I and, can see what they're there. And so there's, there. there's, and what you'll find, it's easy to deconstruct these. There's also a hint of truth in all of them, right? The problem is when we say that God determines our suffering and causes it, you know, you could say God wills our suffering so that this other thing that's apparently good can happen. Mm -hmm. And that's where there's the problem is not just the existential problem of us going like, well, nobody asked me if I thought that experience was good. Yeah. Uh, but you have a metaphysical problem, so a theological problem, in that we're saying that the transcendent being causes our suffering. You then can't say, if we're going to say that suffering and evil aren't good things, that that being's good. Right. Okay? So I'm, not, I'm less concerned about the uh, practical dimension there of you know, I don't want these things to happen to sure. me. It's more, that does philosophically mean that God's not good. Exactly. It's like, okay. why would you worship a God like that? And and so part of looking for theoretical satisfaction here is going like, are these, are these ideas tenable mm -hmm. philosophically? That one, that one's got a problem. Um, another one like it is called aesthetic theodicy. And again, it goes by a lot of different names, but aesthetic theodicy is the idea that 
God uses suffering uh, to help us recognize God's beauty. Okay. Also weird. Yeah. Uh, but you can see why this would be a reason people would put forth because they would go in, in that hell that I just went through, that contrast allows me to appreciate how, uh, magnificent or good God is. Right. Okay. The, the reason that these two are, uh, put together is you have the same philosophical problem, which is that the suffering originates in the transcendent being, it's hard for that being to be good. Right. Okay. Now, both of these, soul building and aesthetic, are really concerned about God being all powerful. Right. Right. God is provident. And so, yes, suffering and evil exist, but look, no, it's because God's using these, because God's all powerful. Remember? Mm-hmm. And at, at, in that, they, it's at the expense of God's goodness. What it's also at the expense of is free will. So both of these would assume free will and that the human being is able to change as a result of suffering, either seeing God's glory or they're able to change uh, by developing and maturity, right? right? So, But that's the extent of free will in these. Everything else is uh, the idea that it's, it's determined. Right. It's something that's imposed upon you mm-hmm. pretty much without you having any say or decision right. in this. Right. But... Think about how this plays out, right? Everything happens for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Okay? But uh-huh. that's a theodicy. Yes, I know. That's a soul-building theodicy. And it's helpful to see that because we can name it. And if we understand the uh, philosophical problems with soul-building theodicy and what parts it's paying attention to and what parts it's not, we can go, this is why everything happens for a reason is actually unhealthy and it's uh, irrational. Um, but so that's one that's really common in our culture. Everything happens for a reason. Right. You often hear people say that to someone who is and suffering. They, and they don't realize what they're saying, but they are saying God's not, God's all powerful, but God's not all good. And that's why you're suffering right now. Um, the same with aesthetic, right? You could say everything happens for a reason, or you could, you will sometimes hear sort of like, look for the good in it. Right. It's like, yeah. But my child just died. Yeah. Okay, so we're not, when we go look for the good in it, yeah, there's something to be said there. And, and we'll get to that. Right. But in, in the midst of it, it's, it's philosophically problematic and it's existentially damaging, right? Okay, right. so those, those are two of the main ones. Um, there, another one that's common is called fideism or uh, faith and trust sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is one that I almost don't even want to bring out because I, uh, I I don't want people to know, know it exists. And it's basically... Oh, they do. <laughs> but it's basically like, uh, you're a human. You are finite. God is all-powerful. God is in control. You shouldn't even worry about it. Mm-hmm. Just, just trust God. And this is problematic because it's just terrible philosophy like so you're saying that god is all powerful god is provident but you're not telling me how um and there's no description of what that looks like and then i have to assume that god's in control here which means god was in control when this terrible thing happened um with fideism there's one called sapiential 
uh, which is basically, it, it's less religious, but it's the same kind of idea in that human understanding only goes so far. So you can ask the question about suffering, but you'll never fully comprehend it, so you should probably just give up asking the question. That's a theodicy as well. Um, there's a couple others. Eschatological is one that says, you know, we can't really figure out suffering right now, but God will make it all good in the end. So just just trust in that idea. Yep. Yeah. So it's in that way, that one's kind of like fideism. Eschatolo eschatological is actually one that I really like, um, but not in that way. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll nuance that later. There's mm -hmm. another one called theology, a uh, theology of the cross, um, which is very Lutheran in a way. Um, but as a theodicy, what it says is that your suffering is so that you can share in the suffering of Christ and therefore grow in your faith, right? Mm -hmm. Again, there's some potential beautiful truth there. Um, especially you think about like liberation movements, right? Where people go, in me being, experiencing this massive suffering, this is the same suffering that Christ went through. And uh, I'm able to endure it in a way because of my faith. That that part, yeah, you can kind of see where that comes from. Most people don't mean it like that. Uh, and it can get really uh, uh, masochistic really quickly. Yeah. The, and it comes down to that whole idea again. It's like, why does that kind of suffering have to even be part of the theology? Mm -hmm. why, why does that even have to be part of the picture? Right. The idea of, of, of that whole... God's yeah. dishonor and God has been dishonored. This thing has to happen in order for that, you know, suffering has to occur mm -hmm. almost in order for him to be um, appeased or made right or that we can be right with that. Even that I have a right. problem with. I, and, and I do think that one would be the most interesting, at least biblically, to unpack. Because uh, yeah, you get into sure, because, incarnation, mm -hmm. you get into Trinity, you get into uh, spirits, you get into soteriology. Like it, that one brings right. up all of these interesting things that that could be fun. That could be a topic in itself, probably. Yes, it probably could be. Um, another one is mystical theodicy, um, which is probably the least clear, but that's how mysticism always is. Um, but it, it offers an interesting perspective of that you you can find God in the midst of of suffering, um, but you're also very limited in, in this transcendent being. It doesn't add a whole lot to the theoretical and practical satisfaction, but yeah. it is it is a thought that a lot of people have had over time. Um, so what's important once you see all these is to go, all right, how do they hold up to God is all powerful, God is all good, right. suffering and evil exists, so what do we do with that? I think all of them fail in some capacity. I agree. Um, and one of the things that, again, we're concerned about practical satisfaction to this. So any theory should help promote responding to suffering and finding healing. Um, so we have to look at how do these play out? And one of the things, uh, so let's use, trying to think of where, where to start. Okay, so one, one thing that uh, something like soul building could do is we go, God's doing this to make you better. Okay? Right. So God caused the suffering to make you better. Um, so what kind of response does that elicit? At best, it's you look for how can I improve my life now? 
What do I what do I do now that this is happening? That would be the the healthiest way of dealing mm-hmm. with it. If it, there is a healthy way, that would be the way yeah. to you well, know, and, and create something good out of something bad that's happened. And you know, I challenge somebody to look at like what's what's a terrible piece of suffering that you've had, whether a tragedy or a, just a person died or you lost a house or you know, whatever that thing is, you did change. Yeah. So this does allow us to see like change occurs as a result of suffering. Right. Um at at worst though, your response to suffering will always be uh like a paralysis or an apathy. Mm-hmm. As you go, well, God's just out there doing what God's gonna do. So Yeah, it's know. either mean or it's arbitrary. <laughs> so you're you're <laughs> yeah. never you're never going to stop suffering from happening mm-hmm. because well God's gonna do it and I guess we'll just use it as an opportunity to grow. Um think about one and one of the things I think is really important when you're talking about suffering is using um, Immanuel Kant's logic, which he called a categorical imperative, which we don't need to get into here. I'm just trying to point to there's, there's a precedent for this, which is to say a thing that is true then should be true in every single um, um, circumstance. Right. right. So, you know, you got divorced and it hurt, but look at the, look at who you became as a result. Great. What about uh, when Pope John Paul II lost his entire family in a matter of weeks because the Nazis killed them all and he was only a teenager? Right. Now, did Pope John Paul II do something with that? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. But it has to start with, uh, this sucks. Mm-hmm. And you have to sit in that. Okay, so you got to be careful of walking up to somebody and saying, hey, it's okay. God's got you. And you're going to be, you know, Go, go up to somebody who just like tragically lost their spouse and be like, this is going to change you for the better. And, <laughs> yeah, and, thanks. and God, <laughs> God's got a plan here. Yeah. Ooh, if we're worried about practical satisfaction, that's not very helpful. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the philosophical issues with that are now you're handing me a world I don't want to live in. Exactly. Um, so David Bentley Hart critiques the Odyssey, and he he uses the image that um, if some of these are true, well, then the kingdom of God is but a dream, yeah. and real life is just a nightmare. Right. And and God might be magnificent, but God's also terrifying. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so that that's one thing that it can do. The other thing that it can do is it can justify evil. Is I can go and I can um, torment somebody and go but God's using this for you to grow or I'm revealing God's beauty or God yes. caused, God, God caused this, not me. Right. I'm not doing this. God is. And so you have to accept it. Um, this was actually a response to slavery. Oh, absolutely. In, mm-hmm. in, uh, in the abolitionist movement, that's how people responded was, no, this is God's will. Right. And then it doesn't even, you know, the other question I would have about this is when you're talking about these theodicies, you have to bring in that idea of the image of God. So if you can take a person then and say, you know, well, then the reason you're suffering is, is because you are not fully human. You are not fully the image of God. So it's okay Mm -hmm. for me, which to me goes back to that mechanistic idea. You know, I know some philosophers like Descartes felt that animals, for example, had no souls, so we could use them any way we wanted. Oh, sure. All you have to do is dehumanize a human being, and now you're saying, well, God said that, that this world is here for us to use as we like. You're just a part of that. 
I'm a human, you're not, you're just a resource. But th that's true. Um, and what it does, does to how you see the image of God and other people. Right. But it also, think of it the other way, where if that's what God is like, yes, then that's what we can be like. Mm -hmm. I'm in the image of God and God is a psychopath. Right. So now I can do all these things and justify it because it's God, right? Mm -hmm. So th those are some problems with it. Um, another problem that can come up with, if you focus more on the free will bend, right? So some of these that say suffering happens because we choose it. Right. Um, is the amount of guilt we can, we can put on ourselves oh, for like, so, so, and, and detached guilt, not correlated and causated guilt. Right. So like, right. not guilt is going to make you change you, for the better. If you kill somebody mm -hmm. and you feel guilty about that. Yeah, pr probably. I think that you're actually working with good theodicy at that point. <laughs> exactly. But if you, uh, uncorrelated guilt, which would be, um, your spouse dies. And I'm just, I'm using that example because like that would be terrible for me. Mm -hmm. Your spouse dies and you, and you go, it's because I didn't yes. do X, Y, or Z, right. You know, last week or when mm -hmm. I was younger and I deserve this. Right. I'm being punished. Or worse, you tell someone that, well, you must've done something wrong or that uh, kind of yeah, terrible yeah, thing yeah. wouldn't have happened to you. Right. Right. And we use the language of karma, which mm -hmm. is actually a, a pretty bad understanding of karma. Right. But our culture uses that all the time. Um, we use that language of like, you, you created this. Mm -hmm. And now listen, sometimes you did. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and that can be part of a uh, part of, part of that conversation. But the other, though, the further extent that this goes to is victim blaming. Yeah. Right. Where, um, let's say, let, we'll use the example of rape. Mm -hmm. Somebody gets raped and we say, well, you have free will. You made these decisions that happen. Right. Sorry. You got what you had coming. Um, that's a problem existentially and practically. What does that also say about God is that God, even in free will. Right refuses to intervene on something terrible. Well, right? and then it even goes into the whole idea of things like eternal damnation and predetermination. And I don't even know if we want to go there because that can get kind of messy. But I mean, the idea that you're going to deserve, some people deserve to, uh, you know, be punished in some awful way because they don't live according to the way that, you know, a set of rules that it seems very rule oriented and very power over oriented to yeah. me. Yeah, but it's it's possible to use that as a justification if you perceive God to be like this and you perceive the right. world to metaphysically work like this. Mm -hmm. I, I, what these point out is that coming up with a response to suffering isn't just a one-off thing that you say it and it's done. It has effects. Absolutely. How you view God, how you view the world, um, how you view human free will, all of this affects how you're going to interact with that world. Um, so if God is terrifying, mm -hmm. well, then we're going to have to, that's going to impact how we are a church and how we interact with each other. Um, if God is off in the distance and doesn't care, so deism, mm -hmm. well, that's going to shape how we're going to try to survive and endure. Right. So I, that's why I think, um, that's, that's why I think that this perspective is important is that it can help posit a healthy response, um, but it can also 
lead to a really destructive response. So we got to have the theoretical uh, conversation. Um, One of the biggest effects of most of these theodicies that we've gone through is that a critique after the Holocaust was that theodicy is just should be done away with because it, it gives evil too positive a role in creation. So in defending God, we're actually defending why evil exists. And you got to understand that these are people like who survived concentration camps saying, please stop trying to explain to me how this happened. Right. The, I feel like we talked about this. I'm pretty sure we did last episode. I think we did. Mm -hmm. Um, But Eli Weisel has a play in which they're putting God on trial for the, um, for the Holocaust and for concentration camps. And, um, they go through all these different theodicies, a lot of the ones that we just talked about. And at the end, when they're, when they're going to come to a consensus for what they're going to do about this, they find out that the person making the arguments for why the suffering has happened uh, was wearing a mask, takes off the mask and it's actually Satan. Right. And the, the point for Weisel was like, don't trivialize suffering. Don't try to explain it away. There's no answer for this. And they're, they're focused on the existential component of that. Um, but it reveals that when you try to create an absolute articulation for why suffering exists and who is God in spite of suffering, mm-hmm. you're probably going to cause more problems than you're going to uh, bring solutions. So be really careful with that. Um, and that's something that we have to take into account. However, I have, I have been... So I'm 30. Right. I've done a lot of funerals. Yeah. More, more than I can count. Not, I'm not talking about hundreds of funerals, but a lot. Um, the ones that I can't count are not the ones that haunt me. I can count some. There's 12 funerals I've done for people under the age of 30 who all died tragically. Yeah. Okay, you're talking car accidents. We're called in, talking uh, drunk driving. Um, we're talking medical failures, uh, drug overdoses, suicide. There's been a lot of these. Okay. Right. Now 12 is not a ton. I'm saying as a 30 year old, 12 feels like a lot. That seems like okay? a lot. Yes. So I've been doing this for seven years. Sure. That's more yeah, than 12 and seven years. That's more than yeah. one a year. Okay. Yeah. But that, that being said, I'm just trying to say I have some experience with this. Right. Exactly. And what I have found is that every family person that I interact with in response to that tragedy always goes here first. They want to know why did this happen? Yeah. How could this happen? Explain it to me. And they want that answer. And, uh, the part of me wants to shy them away from that. Like that's not what you need, but in the process of grief, it is what they need. That's one of the steps to grieving. And, uh, we're going to see those steps when we get to the book of lamentations, but that's one of the steps in grieving and what I found is that having a better way to articulate what is happening that is philosophically tenable, that that gives existential satisfaction to how they see the world, it's actually super beneficial to moving them towards healing. Okay. And that's why this has become like, okay, no, we have to have the theory conversation because yeah. I've actually seen it help. And so our next question becomes, what is a viable theodicy? Mm-hmm. What is a an alternative to these that we can look at and go, okay, that's that's a better way to understand what's going on here. 
so that we can have the practical conversation. And remember, all of this is so that we can find practical healing. Yes. Right? So, so that's what I find important uh, for dealing with this. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to okay. get into that alternative theodicy next week. Yeah. Um, and we're going to, I actually have one that it's not mine. I've stolen it from a lot of different voices. I've tried to put it into a uh, coherent argument. Um, one that, that I call the transcendent uh, guide or okay. the transcendent parent guide. Okay. So we'll get into That'll that. Interesting. Okay. We'll get into that mm-hmm. next week. We do have a couple uh, questions here, I think. And if you all have any questions, you can go ahead and bring those up. Um, uh, or, or go ahead and chat them. So Chantel said, is it possible that there are different types of suffering and they happen for different reasons? I am wondering if the word suffering is limiting, kind of like the word love is limiting in English language. In Italian, there are multiple words for our one word. Um, yeah, Chantel, you're, you're getting into etymology and semantics, which I love. I'm all about, I'm all about that. Um, I do think it's important that we, uh, we define words like this. So I want to say we did last week, but essentially suffering as suffering as loss and grief, um, would be the basic way that I would, that I would try to define it. I do like a more vague understanding of suffering because what I, what I, am afraid of when we start talking about healing from suffering and, and the practical response is that if we only limit suffering to things that we think are um, disastrous, right? So natural disasters, um, Hitler, tragedies and accidents, that that makes it okay. It, it makes us more likely to neglect the, the daily sufferings that we encounter. The, the thing that I think is important about if we say that suffering is this really big thing, coming up with different reasons for suffering, I, w- I would say there might be certain advantages and disadvantages to certain suffering, um, but giving alternative reasons to suffering can be dangerous, right? So if I say, for me, losing my children is not a big deal. And so therefore that could be a, that could be God caused that suffering for me. Um, how is that going to impact how I relate to somebody else who lost their children, who is, uh, it is a huge, and I'm, I'm not saying that wouldn't be a huge issue of suffering for me. That was just an example. Um, but if, if, if we start, if we try to split up different kinds of suffering, there is no absolute way to do that. And so you have to use your opinion in order to determine what suffering is good and what suffering is bad. I'm I I'm not sure if we realize, but like there are there are people who articulate that Hitler was actually good because A B C, and not saying that Hitler was morally good, but the suffering that came from Nazism was good for society. There's people who make that argument, and so. I kind of want to leave the ability to define what suffering is and what the reasons are for these various sufferings. I want to take that out of our, our experiential hands and go, nope, suffering. It's this thing. It's loss and grief. And, and the thing I think is important within theodicy is going, no matter what that suffering is, 
if it results in God's character, then that says something about God. So if God is capable of ordaining a very, what we consider a small suffering, well, then the same logic can be used that God, God caused the Holocaust. God ordained the Holocaust. You, you have to be able to cover that jump. Um, so I do, I do think it's important, one, to define suffering, to have a common definition of it. That's a problem with words and semantics, and it's fair to bring up. Um, but also to see if we do delineate different kinds of suffering, that could be problematic. Um, and so whatever, whatever theodicy we land on should be able to interact with all of the various sufferings, okay? Um, Amy, you've been wanting to talk for like five minutes. And <laughs> My nonverbals here. Um, no, I do think that there might be a slight need to separate out because as I have pointed out, there is some kinds of suffering that are inherent to being alive. And unless, yeah. you know, I don't know how you could even take that out of the equation, then I wouldn't go there. I think that when we're talking, to me, when we're talking about this suffering, we're, kind, we're talking about suffering that is... Um, I don't want to say uniquely brought about by humans, but per perhaps uniquely experienced by humans. Well, and that's where evil is important to bring in. Okay, so right. So we've mostly been using the word suffering. There is a, you, but you'll hear me group them together, suffering and evil. Okay. And it's because I think that evil is the same thing as suffering except maliciously caused. Well, yes, because that, to me you cannot say compare a tsunami to Hitler. Tsunamis right. happen. This now, is the atmosphere. Hitler happened. He was a human being. Can, he created that you, suffering. You can compare that they both cause the same thing. They do suffering. cause the same thing. But so you do have to you do have There's to give the, evil its okay, own Okay, the intentionality to it. it. Yeah, you, but and so you have to give it its own room, but it's part of the same conversation. Okay. Well, how we respond to Hitler and how we respond to the tsunami both have to happen. Yeah. Now, in the context of evil, now we have to have to, to ask other questions, but that's also very complicated. Yeah. And be careful very. of that. And one thing I'd point out to people about evil is be careful calling somebody else evil. I agree. Without realizing how you might be participating in that as well. Well, of course. So, but that, even things a, like, you know, dying, you can't help but die. You're going to get older, you suffer. Uh, animals are designed to kill one another. This is what yeah. they do. We have obligate carnivores, they have to kill and eat. And, and that's you know? what I'm saying. So like, this kind of thing is. You, Suffering is a given. Yeah. It's part of it. But what does that okay. even say then if you're going to, you know, talk about God as the creator? Yeah. And Chantel just brought up the difference between sin and evil. And that's super important. Maybe that is. Yeah. Right. Because even even saying within free will that sin caused the suffering, then that means you're actually tying that back to to God because of how you view yeah. uh, uh, Torah. But evil. Yeah. 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 Evil causes suffering all the time and there's a lot of evil mm -hmm. and I'm not just talking about big bombastic things. Okay. I'm talking about anything that intentionally avoided a correct way of doing something and then maliciously caused suffering for someone right. else. That's a lot of things. Of if we define it that way, that includes a lot of things. Okay. Okay. Um, Bob, Bob brought up, made a comment. I'll read this. There's plenty uh, there's plenty of chaos and misfortune in the world. So God certainly doesn't need to give us more suffering to make us stronger. Well said. If, if we are connected with him, he helps us to recover, gives us hope, points us toward a renewed purpose in life and helps us to focus on the growth. And Bob, what you just did there was you jumped ahead. <laughs> you, uh, yes. I mean, that's the point. And one of the, one of the things I'll point out is that, um, that 
God, you don't have to apologize. I think that's a good sign, actually, um, that God helps us recover. Okay, so that's kind of like soul-building theodicy, that you become stronger, that you, you develop, you have a wise perspective on life. And we would all go like, that happens as a result of suffering. The difference is you're not saying God ordained it. Okay, and now that creates something that we have to figure out then, how did it get here? If God doesn't ordain the suffering, but still helps us utilize it to, to become better and heal, um, now we got to figure out where suffering originates from. And if it still originates from God, we still have that problem. Okay? But no, yeah, you're, you're jumping ahead here, and uh, I like it. Amanda has a thought. Uh, this is from Amanda, um, which is not on your chat screen because she's uh, like sitting <laughs> right there. So she just gave, uh, gave me her phone to read. All suffering comes from a desire and the lack of something that we desire. Sounds like Buddhism. You Buddhist. (laughs) And Stoic. That's a Stoic thought as well. But if we don't desire anything, then where is meaning? And if we lack nothing we desire, then we would just stay stagnant. I think the real question isn't why suffering exists, but why does death and free will exist? Suffering is the result of death or the evil of someone's else's free will. Have you been reading a particular book that uh, <laughs> I may have recommended to you? And I think I brought this book up last week. I, I don't remember if I did, but um, The Slavery of Death oh, by Richard Beck. I thought that sounded familiar, um, yeah. So, so what, what Amanda is getting to is that the fear of death is what causes us to act in ways that we would call sinful or evil. And... Um, Within that, we do have to talk about we do have to talk about suffering and why it exists within our decisions, and I do think that's helpful. We're going to actually get into that with because we have to come up with a theory, right? We have to come up with a, a way to understand why this exists. The hard part, or the harder part about this, is being able. It, it's easier and helpful in a way to go. My suffering is coming from somebody else's fear of death, and they're acting this way. It's, it's a lot harder to understand why that would be allowed to be a thing. Like, why do I have to suffer because somebody else is in that space in life? Um, and a lot of our suffering is a result of that. But you also have the very real question of death. Like, the most common way people suffer is they lose somebody they love. And then why does that exist? Why are you going to have death? But now, you have to have and, it. And uh, one thing, I'll give this back to you. Uh, one thing that I really like about Richard Beck's book is he has an explanation in there of original sin. And, and I think he even says that's not the best phrase to use. But he has an explanation of that because the whole thing of original sin uh, is how a lot of people have used to go like, well, that's why suffering exists because, you know, humans sinned in the beginning, which you all know. It doesn't say that in Genesis chapter 3. It does not. Um, but well, be, beyond that, what, what that also brings up is then why did God make that a possibility in the first place? So you can still blame God, right? And it's, a, it's, a, it's an extra jump. Oh, do you need me to do this right now? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's an extra jump, but um, that's, that's, uh, that's part of that conversation. Um, Bob said, I'll try to stop reading your notes ahead of time. Mike has something on your phone. My, Mike texted me on here? I think so. Oh. I was trying not to be nosy and look at your 
quote your text, but I think Mike... And that's because Mike doesn't want this to be on the chat. Oh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just going to read it. Yep. Oh, the, the first thing Mike brings up is that if we can trace suffering and evil back to a source, metaphysical source, then we should also be able to trace back goodness and gifts in life. Oh, well, of course. Which is part of the providence thing is we mm-hmm. want to be able to say, God, God, you know, makes all of this happen. And then you got oh, even the suffering. So that, that becomes a problem. Um, it's not so much whether and, God is good, but all good is yeah. the question. And then and all he, good and all powerful. He, he brings up um, a similar point that you did about uh, um, there's, oh, there's a role of suffering, apparently, because right. it's just built into how things are. Um, okay. Are there any other questions or thoughts or concerns or just things people need to express? I do apologize because this, this one is the very heady version and not everybody enjoys this. And I promise once we get to the book of lamentations, it's way better. So you got it, but you got it. You got to stick through some of this stuff first. It could have gotten a lot worse. I held back. <laughs> uh, I'm way into this kind of no, conversation, I mean, but yeah, you don't want to. Th- there's a lot. That, heavy, there, there's yeah. a lot that needs to be said. Mm-hmm. I, it's boring for some people. I get that. Maybe the reason nobody's asking questions is because they actually haven't been able to hear us the whole time. Well, that could be, and they're not telling. <laughs> but they they've just gone like we're we'll just let them keep going because they they seem like they're having fun. Sure. But I'm just teasing you all. I wish I could see some of you guys. Hi, Chantel. Hi, Trish. <laughs> she loves. We've All got right. marketplace stuff going on here. And nobody's asking questions, so I don't know what else to say. Amy, do you so, have any questions that you'd want to bring up? Um, well, I did. the idea of that fear of death was an interesting one because um, that did occur to me, but also the idea of original sin. And um, again, we didn't even begin to touch on the idea of whether or not some people are saved and some go to hell and how that looks and, and what that has to do with the kind of God that has, is all good or not and, you know, the kind of suffering that that could create. So, you know, or the guilt, you know, you talked about the guilt mm-hmm. of um, feeling like you cause your own suffering because of the things that you do. And that to me is the ultimate suffering that a person would feel or that they feel that someone else deserves. But Chantel, I'm going to ask you to clarify. You said, I guess I'm growing in my opinion about the grand design thing. I am the one who has been complaining about it for months, but I'm growing in my tolerance of the darkness and suffering. I've never heard you complain about it. Um, but maybe you haven't complained to me. Uh, what do you mean about the grand design thing? Um, just because I, I wish that, um, life I've, I, like I've said it a couple of times in our um, church service that I wish that life was all about sunshine and roses. Hmm. And I'm not a big fan of, um, <laughs> of the, the suffering part and the darkness parts that come like, you know, in the holidays that we talk about and how, um, you, you pull us into the darkness all the time. And yeah. so I do think, I don't think I know I cause my own suffering sometimes. 
And I think like the current, um, the current situations have caused me to like some really good things have come out of the current suffering that's happening in our world, in my life, um, mm-hmm. in my family's life, things that probably um, needed to be talked about for a long time. And um, some really important learning has occurred because of it. And so I'm like moving towards like life doesn't have to always be about sunshine and roses. And and if it is, then we're just like living above the fray in terms of um, not really addressing what's lying underneath there. Like yeah. I, I think we can do a really good job of of planting all of these beautiful flowers around our house and making sure our house is perfectly clean so that the appearance is that everything's sunshine and roses and and so that we don't dive into what's really not sunshine and roses. It kind of reminds me of something that I had put on Facebook about, you know, I take pictures of my house and I do those things and you've seen them on Facebook. And it's like, of course, when I, anybody, we do this, when we take pictures of our house and things we think people are going to see it, you try to make it look nice. You try to make it look good. But you're, like you said, you plant the flowers and you do that things, but you know, what's buried underneath that dirt and, and are you willing? And I think you even kind of did a writing like that once, didn't you, about getting to the dirt of things? You have that bottle of dirt. I don't know. You don't remember anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, but as, but, and there's certainly that to be said. Maybe it's not good to wash over suffering and not think about it. But um, you know, then it's like, then what do you do once you've dug out through that dirt? Now what are you going to do with mm-hmm. that dirt? Yeah, I guess that's kind of what you're saying. Uh, the, the, I would I would just withhold language, and this is even what Trish is kind of pointing to too, like. Withhold languages of design. Um, if if our only option is to say God's causing this and there might be a good reason for it, um, or to not talk about any sort of source or design at all, I'd lean towards no source or design because that's healthier at least. The problem is when we jump into this theory and we try to offer easy answers to it is we end up negating the a healthy response to suffering in the first place and the first processes of grief, one of which is lament. So again, we're going to get into this with the book of Lamentations and we're going to actually see like, this is what needs to happen. What I'm excited for is because especially in our cultural climate right now, it's like, this is what needs to happen. This is what we need to do. Um, And, but it requires us understanding the complexities of suffering. So, yeah, be careful. Be careful. Design language, just within it at all. Um, but I also think, you know, when I talk about suffering and chaos and darkness and all of that, I never try to go into, you know, we need to do Advent because you know God caused these things. Right. Um, it's this is what is. This is what's like right here in front of us. We need to talk about it. We need to be honest about it if we're going to do something about it. Um, so I hope I've never implied that God causes that darkness because that is not my belief. I also, uh, think that God is still all powerful. So I've got some complexities that I need to clear up again. I think we're going to try to do that next week. Um, but I guess if there's one takeaway from this, it's there's two kinds of people in the world. There's a person that says everything happens for a reason. 
And then the person who says that you should never say everything happens for a reason. And I hope that everybody can become the kinds of people that understands why we should never say everything happens for a reason because of the ontological claims they are making and the metaphysical problems it has for society. Hence, I think, I think the this words call- all like I get vocabulary is really important to me, but the the um, the words all and every time and everything yep. and that kind of that kind of language is just really dangerous because right. it's rarely true. Which is not in the Bible, right? The ideas of omnipresence and omnipotence and omnipre whatever they all sound the same to me. Those those well, are- you have to say that again, Tyler. Uh, omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscient. I don't even, I, I care so little about these words because they're not in the text. They come from classical philosophy. So a lot of these, this whole idea of like God being all powerful and God being all good, I don't care about for biblical reasons. All right. Because the picture that we get of God in the Bible is very different, very helpful. But I think it is it is powerful to be able to understand these ideas in a philosophical sense. Okay, so I do think it is important metaphysically that God be all good. Because if that's not true, and I'm just talking about this in a philosophical lens, and I understand that most people don't care about this, and I, and I, I mourn that because we should. Uh, because it impacts how we live. But I, it has to be true because if that's not true, if God's not all good, then I shut it down. Shut it down. Th- this is a terrible project. Um, but if God's all-powerful, right, and by all-powerful we mean that God has determined everything, then shut it down. Because there's no greater meaning to the world except it is what it is. Neither one of those are worlds that I care to live in because either one has no purpose or the other one is God is a terrifying monster and please just get me out of here. Okay. And so I do think it's helpful to have these conversations philosophically because it does, it does have, it does have serious implications for how we live. I don't think it's the end of the conversation. And that's why I leave the book of lamentations for last because what we're going to get is we're going to get a very different portrayal of God and how suffering works and how God responds to it. And all that stuff's like, that's the gold. That's the stuff that we actually need to take and instill in our bones. But if we don't have these conversations first, we're not going to be able to hear why Lamentations is important. All right, so that's why that's why you kind of got to wade through this stuff. It's it's almost like getting, getting the... Uh, I'm trying to use a non-mechanistic metaphor because you've you've confronted mechanism so much, but it's like get get in the 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 house ready before we can have the party, right? So we're cleaning up right. and we're getting everything where we need it to be, and then then we're gonna party with lamentations, <laughs> which is that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard anybody. Which say. to me is a party, but you bring up like being able to go into these spaces and Chantel, I hope you you never have heard that. Uh, if you if you yearn for sunshine and butterflies, that you're complaining or you're missing something. I don't want to. I don't want to make people uh, make people feel um, guilty for that kind of stuff. I I do think that 
it's, it's helpful to be honest about the world we live in. And this is the world we live in. So what are we going to do with it? And the thing that I brought up back after Easter was how people look at me sometimes, and, I'm, and I apologize if this is arrogant, but they look at me and they're like, how are you handling this so well? Whatever it is, like my, the stuff with my dad, um, this, this issues that I've had in my family, um, the COVID situation, whatever. And it's like, because I go to these places. I sit in this, not because I want to, not because I like it. Everybody here at the farmhouse thinks like I like, I, I'm a masochist and I just like darkness. Uh, no, I've just seen it enough to know that if we neglect it, then we're all going to be in trouble. Um, and, and that's where hope always has to be part of the conversation. Um, and my, my clemmer had just said to me, um, what will it mean to move beyond the dialectic? And, and that's dialectic as like there's two sides here and they're separated. And uh, I think philosophically you're going to have some of that with, within it. But all that's about to shift because what, what you've noticed is all these theodicies are dialectic in nature. Of like there's the all good, there's the all powerful. It's either like this or it's like this. And the best thing we can do is create a theodicy that doesn't have that dialectic. That doesn't say it's either like this or like this, but instead goes, how does God interact with all of it? And then the book of Lamentations is going to end up just being a, a chaotic earthquake of all philosophical notions, <laughs> if that makes sense. But it's so beautiful because, remember, Lamentations is a poem. It's actually five poems. It's art. Uh, and so, I don't know, like... Let, I, I'm more excited for that. But next week, we'll, th we're through the hardest part. We're through the most boring yes, we part. Are. Yes. So, um, all right, we're going to shut this down. Next week, we'll get into an alternative theodicy. Um, and I, I do think that will start getting more practical for us. So we'll get into that. Um, if you guys have any other suggestions for things, um, just let me know. And uh, also, I'll say that this week, our board is meeting to discuss a date for when we are going to be back. So hopefully I'll be posting some information on when when uh, y'all can be in this room with me because I'm excited for that. Um, so grace and peace be with all of you. We will see you soon.